We once again return to our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 13. So if you will turn there with me, we're going to be examining the first three verses this morning, but I want to read the entirety of the chapter. It's, it's very short so that we get a sense of the overall flow. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. For Christians and non-Christians alike, this is perhaps one of the most recognized passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Even atheists like to hear it read at weddings. Probably most of you had it read at your wedding, or at least part of it. You could pretty much go to anyone on the street and, and say to them, complete this sentence. Love is patient, love is, and they would all know it. But I can assure you that the vast majority of people who have an appreciation for and a familiarity with 1 Corinthians 13 have no idea what the Apostle Paul is really referring to when he speaks about love. They can't really define the love that he references. Most people have no idea of the context in which it is used. And most people have no idea what it is to actually love in the way he describes. Now, this is partially true because most people, let's face it, are ignorant of Scripture. 
But also, it's because, especially in our language and in our culture, the word love is used to describe basically anything we like. You know, it's, we, we will say, for example, well, I love my wife or husband, but I also love my kids. I love my dog. Some people even love cats. Um, I love my pickup. I love my house. I love my favorite football team, and it goes on from there. But isn't it interesting when you think about it, for example, we love our spouse in a different way than we love our kids. And we love our kids in a little different way than we love our friends. Now, the Greek has different words to express all of these things, but the Greek term for love that the Apostle Paul uses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a word that was seldom used in the Greek culture. It's seldom even seen in their literature. In fact, he had to borrow it from their culture and their literature to express the kind of love that God has in mind. It's the Greek word agape. You're familiar with it. I like the way one lexicon put it. Agape is a strong, non-sexual affection and regard for a person and their good as understood by God's moral character, especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. Said simply, agape love is compassionate acts of self-sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and on and on it goes. So this kind of love is a a, a self-sacrificing and, and affectionate disposition that seeks the good of others that don't deserve it. And it has no demand that that other person reciprocate. So, folks, this is a spirit-empowered compassion that will do whatever to seek the welfare of others over self, even the welfare of of an enemy. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, have compassion for your enemies that leads to acts of self-sacrifice. Now, that's a radically different kind of love than we would have, for example, for our spouse or our family or our friends. Folks, this is the kind of love that is really the mark of genuine Christianity. This is the, the, the sine qua non, shall we say, of, of ministry and discipleship. Those of you students who are familiar with, with Latin, that was a, a legal term that means without, without which nothing. Sine qua non. Without this kind of love, our ministry, our life is really nothing in the eyes of God. 
On the eve of his sacrificial death on the cross, you will remember Jesus washed the feet of the disciples who were bickering amongst one another to determine which one deserved the greatest prominence in the kingdom. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and following. In other words, I want you to have an affectionate compassion for one another. The type of love that I am demonstrating to you right now, the type of love that you are going to see tomorrow when I hang on the cross. Now, this was totally foreign to the Greco-Roman culture of that day. For them, love was primarily uh, sexual, emotional, ecstatic. Such a virtue, frankly, was considered weakness to them. Uh, they, They were all about exalting themselves and retaliating when doing wrong. This may be dating me, but I remember... Clint Eastwood saying, go ahead and make my day. All right, some of you remember that. You get the idea. That's how they thought. Now, I can hear some of you already saying, but pastor, you're telling us that this kind of love has an emotional element to it. You speak of compassionate acts of self-sacrifice. You speak of an affectionate disposition that seeks the good of others. How can we have affection and compassion for enemies? How can we possibly do that? I thought agape love was just merely an act of the will, not of the emotions. Well, at some level, that's true. But there needs to be some clarification and amplification. Too often as Christians, we fool ourselves into thinking that we are manifesting genuine agape love when we seek the good of our enemy on the outside, but on the inside, we can't stand them. We have contempt. Or perhaps we're not that hateful, but we just do things and we really have no feeling at all. We really don't care about them. We're just doing it to be doing. We have no burden for their spiritual condition no compassion for the eternal destiny of their soul, no internal weeping over them as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, no genuine desire to see them somehow come to a place of repentant faith. None of that's there. We just have a stoic, cold indifference. We're emotionally disengaged and detached from an enemy, or even a neighbor that we may not know too well, but we're just doing something to check off the box. Check off the do-good box, because that's what we need to do, right? That's agape love. No, it's not. We check off the box, but down deep we have feelings that basically say, I really don't care for this person. I mean, frankly, what I'm doing now is all about me, not really about them. It's just an unfeeling act of the will. It's altruism without emotion. It's nothing in the eyes of God. 
Dear Christian, I, I really want you to hear this. Doing self-sacrificial acts of kindness without affection, without any genuine heartfelt emotion, is not agape love. Agape love is a compassion that will fuel acts of self-sacrifice. Now, Paul is going to go on to show us that even the most extreme form of self-sacrifice that benefits others is utterly worthless in the eyes of God unless it is animated by genuine, a genuine subjective feeling of love. I know some are going to say, and I've heard this before, Pastor, you can't be serious. I mean, come on, I, 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 I can suck it up and do the right thing. But to actually have love in my heart for an enemy or someone that might be persecuting me or my family, how can anyone possibly do that? Well, the answer is, in our flesh, we absolutely cannot because this is a spirit-empowered virtue. And isn't it interesting that it is the first fruit of the spirit mentioned in Galatians 5? Folks, this is a love that can only be the fruit of the spirit. It's not something that we can conjure up in our heart. Now, that's not to say that this would exclude acts of self-defense or even capital punishment and so on. But, beloved, please hear me. What Paul is describing here is a love that has the stamp of heaven on it. This is a love that is so foreign to our way of thinking, to our nature. You see, this is a supernatural love. This is a love that is utterly bereft of self-will, of self-exaltation, of revenge. This is a love that would motivate Stephen to cry out to the Lord to be merciful to his enemies that were gnashing their teeth at him while they were stoning him to death. We read in Acts 7, verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. This is a love that would cause Jesus to say, in the midst of his incomprehensible agony on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Oh, child of God, this is the kind of love that Christ has for us. This is a love that has the eternal perfections of a holy God as our supreme example and source. And this is most vividly illustrated in God loving us when we were yet in rebellion against him, his enemies. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, the apostle Paul says. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, obviously, this is the very antithesis of the kind of love that we see in our culture. That's basically a merit-based love. 
it, it starts, you know, with the teenage puppy love. I call it the wall or the mall love. You see the kids walking around and they, they can't hardly do anything. They're hanging on to each other, holding hands and all. I mean, this kind of love is so foreign to them, it just, it, you can't even state it. I love you so much because you're so cute. You're so sexy, you're so smart, you're so rich, you're so popular, you make me feel so good. That's self-centered manipulation. That's not agape love. They're basically saying, I love me and you make me feel good about myself, so I need you to keep loving me. And as long as you do, as long as you meet my needs and my expectations, then I will keep loving you. And frankly, that's what most marriages are built on, and that's why so many marriages don't last. Most marriages are motivated out of selfish manipulation, not selfless ministry. Sweet thing, you make me feel so incredibly good, so I want to give you the rest of your life to make me feel this way. And as long as you do, everything's going to be fine. But once you stop, I'm out of here. You know, this carries over into the church, doesn't it? This is what was going on in Corinth. Many friendships are shallow at best, manipulative at worst. Christian friend, I love being around you because you make me feel good about myself. And as long as that continues, we're going to be great friends. But once you stop meeting my expectations, once you offend me, once you disrespect me or disregard me, once you do not do what I think you need to do and meet my standards, we're done. This is why so many friendships fail. And folks, what I've just described was at the very root of what was going on in Corinth. I'm reminded of what James 4, beginning of verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, the opposite of agape love. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, friends, agape love is not based upon attraction. It's not some sentimental, cozy kind of love. It's not the, the warm, fuzzy saccharine, sweet talk among girlfriends type of love. It's not the the cuddly caresses and sentimental kisses kind of love. has nothing to do with that. Agape love is is a spirit-empowered, decisive, determined, self-abasing act of the will that flows from the fountain of Christ's love for us. The absolute antithesis to the kind of love you hear sung about on the radio. The opposite of what you see in all of the Hollywood movies. It's no wonder people don't understand this kind of love. Now, with this understanding of agape love, let me remind you of the immediate context of chapter 13. Think about it. For 12 chapters now, Paul has been addressing the confusion and the division that dominated the life of that church. Paul has already rebuked them for their arrogance, for their elitism, for their divisiveness. 
Jealousy and pride were producing all kinds of strife, especially as it related to spiritual gifts. And this was the hot-button issue. Many of the people were seeking the showy gifts in order to draw attention to themselves. They practiced glossolalia. We've talked about this some. We're going to talk about it more in the days to come. But that was a counterfeit of, of the true gift of languages. Glossolalia re- refers to just unintelligible stammering, um, ecstatic gibberish, where people make up nonsensical syllables. Not at all the New Testament gift of, of genuine, meaningful, translatable foreign languages. And this was understandable, as you will recall, because of the prevalence of the mystery religions that dominated the culture of that day. Um, and many of them believed in uh, sec- sexual ecstasia. You, you remember me speaking about that, where in their worship they would get worked up into uh, just a, a, an emotional frenzy through hypnotic chants and ceremonies until they experienced some kind of semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or the goddess that they worshipped, and it ended up in drunken sexual orgies. They also had what was called enthusiasmos. We get our word enthusiasm for that. That involved frenzied emotional formulas, foretelling, um, divination, revelatory dreams and visions and all this type of stuff. And as you will recall, as we've studied this in the past, both ecstasia and enthusiasmos are the distinguishing marks of the charismatic movement today and Pentecostal movement. In fact, you're going to see later on in chapter 14, Paul is going to address this head on. And what's fascinating, he's going to use the phrase Leyland Glossae to speak in a tongue or, or Leyland Glossats to speak in tongues. And that was an expression that was commonly used in the first century among the pagans to describe this pagan ecstatic speech. So in chapter 12, and here's the context. This is why it's so important. In chapter 12, Paul seeks to um, correct these misunderstandings and the misuse of spiritual gifts. He, He stresses their interrelatedness, that all the gifts are important, all the gifts are part of the body, uh, so don't feel inferior or superior. And the, just bear in mind, the Corinthians weren't lacking any spiritual gifts. The same thing here. All believers have a spiritual gift or mo- one or more. What they were lacking was spiritual power because they lacked love that comes with that. In fact, in the end of verse 12, verse 31, he says, but you earnestly desire the greater, greater gifts. You know, you're, you're envious. You're looking for the showy gifts that will elevate your status, that will make you feel more superior, more special, more spiritual. So you're not thinking of serving others and edifying the body. And that's why Paul says, and I show you a still more excellent way. And the more excellent way is the way of love in chapter 13. Now, obviously, this kind of love was largely missing in the Corinthians church. And then in chapter 14, he's going to build upon love as the more excellent way, and he will aggressively confront, he will aggressively confront the Corinthians regarding their, their sinful abuse of the gift of tongues. So w- think of it this way. 
Chapter 13 is like a, a beautiful hymn of encouragement and praise. It's almost like it doesn't fit as you read through 1 Corinthians. You know what it reminds me of, and maybe you can identify with this. You know those times, parents, where you have to set your child down and you are reading the riot, out, riot act out to them. You're confronting them. You're giving them down the road because of what they've done wrong. And then all of a sudden you just stop and say, but son, I want you to understand how much I love you. And how much God loves you and how important it is for you just to understand all that we're saying here and why this is so important for your sanctification. And you just hang on to them and you love them. And then you start back in again. And that's what happens here with chapter 13. That's what he's doing. So that's the context. Now, dear CBC family, this is everyone that gets around us talks about the love of this church and and this congregation is loving but let's face it we're all deficient here (laughs) we could all do so much better Uh, so let's examine ourselves in light of the word i wrote down some things that i that i'm that may kind of help characterize my thinking here and and help you look at your own life here if you pout when you don't get your way you're deficient in this love If you become sour and sullen towards those who don't meet your expectations, you're deficient in this love. If you are unforgiving when wronged, if you're easily offended, if you drop subtle hints to others when you've been mistreated and try to cast dispersions on other people and malign them, you're deficient in this kind of love. When you take pride in not allowing others to disrespect you and you're bent on getting even with them, if you're filled with jealousy or envy or if you hold a grudge towards other people or if you want to make certain that some people just stay away from you, you're deficient in this kind of love. If you break fellowship with those who don't agree with your preferences, If you have no real feeling of affection for others, especially those who really don't like you or you don't like them, if you seek the attention and affirmation of others, if you secretly enjoy the failure of others, if you dominate conversations by talking about yourself, if you're the hero of all of your stories, if you are controlling, hot-tempered, impatient, demanding, selfish, self-promoting, and you can't wait to spread bad news about other people, you're deficient in this kind of love. And finally, if knowing and serving Christ is not the number one priority in your life, you're deficient in this kind of love. Did I leave anybody out? I see my name after many of those points and my picture, and I see some of you. That's why it's so important that we love each other, right? Because none of us are perfect. Well, we're going to look at the value of love in the first three verses, and then the virtues of love in verses 4 through 7, and then finally the victory of love in verses 8 through 13. We're just going to look at number one today, and I pray that the Spirit of God will will really speak to your heart as he has to me as, as I've examined this over the last week or so. So let's think about the value of love. Now, also by way of introduction, this is so important. Paul does something here that is 
that is really fascinating. He uses hyperbole in the most excellent and unique way. Hyperbole, by the way, is just exaggerated statements or claims that are not meant to be taken literally, but are, it's a figure of speech to really emphasize a point. And what he's going to do here is use illustrations that will go from the possible to the impossible. He's going to use illustrations that go, you, you might say, from the dual to the hypothetical, from the earthly to the heavenly. And he will do this to expose the hypocritical arrogance that was ripping apart the church at Corinth, making their ministries ineffective, robbing them of God's blessing and even eternal rewards. So let's look at what he says here. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And when he speaks of tongues here, it could be translated languages. And you will recall that this was the most highly prized of all of the gifts in Corinth because it was the most showy. The real gift of language, languages consisted of, of, of a miraculous ability to speak in unlearned foreign languages for the sake of proclaiming the word of God and authenticating both the message and the messengers. You will recall it was a sign to unbelievers to point them to the gospel. It was also a sign of judgment to Israel. But not everyone has this gift. That's what Paul is saying. So because some of the saints wanted recognition, they would flaunt their perceived spirituality by blurting out strings of ecstatic utterances. By the way, this was resurrected, as you will recall, in 1901 when Charles Parham gave birth to the Pentecostal movement in a Bible school in Kansas. We've studied that in the past. So Paul is saying, look, you, you can speak in the legitimate languages of men or even of angels. Now let's stop here. Got to stop. Of angels, what's he talking about? Well, remember, he's going from the, shall we say, the possible to the impossible here. And this is not a proof text for angelic speech, as some claim. This is not a reference to heavenly speech that someone could have. I remember I was a field supervisor for. Uh, North America Indigenous Ministries up in British Columbia for three summers. And, and one of the families that were there for a summer missionary work uh, were, were under my care. And I went to see them and we started praying. And all of a sudden, they started all the, together, the kids, the mom and the dad. And I thought, what on earth is going on? And I stopped them. I said, whoa, 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 what, what's happening here? Oh, that, 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 this, is, this is our angelic language. This is our heavenly speech. Well, I don't want to spend much time on that, but... Again, all of this first started in 1901. Remember, uh, the, those people believed that you could have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that would cause you to speak in tongues. And so now you wouldn't have to learn languages. And so they, they, they bragged about how they're sending out missionaries all over the world. The Spirit of God is going to help them to understand languages. They're not going to have to learn the languages. Well, that was a total disaster because it's unbiblical. It's untrue. And in order to save face... They said, well, you know what, it's, it's, it's not other languages, it, it, it's, 
It's special private prayer language. It's angelic language. It's heavenly tongues. But all Paul is doing here is using hyperbole. But also Paul knew that the Corinthians inappropriately exalted angels and would therefore, in their minds, consider the language of angels to be, shall we say, the most glorious manner of ecstatic speech. And perhaps that was going on in his mind. We can't be certain. And I, as I was thinking about this, and as, as you read both First and Second Corinthians and other passages that give us insight into that church, I think, my, wouldn't it have been great, or, or wouldn't it be great to somehow hear a recording of what went on in the service? You know, you, you, you're all of a sudden, for example, going to have somebody stand up. You've got lots of different languages in there. If you've been in other parts of the world, you will see that. And somebody stands up and they truly have the gift of tongues and they're able to speak to this group of people so that they can understand. And then there's somebody else with the gift of interpretation and they are interpreting everything that this person says so that the whole body can be edified. And then suddenly Wilma Wannabe gets a quiver in her liver and stands up, starts dancing around, waving her hands, and she's going into all of this gibberish. That's what was going on, not with just one person, but with many. And you see that today in certain circles. And I can imagine they would have said to Wanda, Wanda, what are you doing? We don't know what you're saying. Well, of course you don't. It's angelic. And that's the mentality of many today. And by the way, there's evidence that this was going on with a lot of people in the church at one time, simultaneously. Can you imagine the chaos? No wonder they come running to Paul saying, oh, we need help. Thus, First and Second Corinthians. Now, notice what Paul says. I speak, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me give you some historical background here. The Greeks worshipped Dionysus. Um, the god of the grape harvest, the god of winemaking. He was considered the, the god of, of fertility and, and even the god of ritual madness that they thought was worship, religion, religious ecstasy. In fact, the Romans adopted the name Bacchus to describe him because of the frenzy associated with his worship. It was, it was called Bacchaea. And the Bacchantes were the worshipers of this God. And these people in Corinth that were in the church, a lot of them had been saved out of all of that. They were very familiar with all of that. It's interesting. If you look at that worship, they would sacrifice goats to this supposed God to, to keep him from doing bad things to them. And guess what they used in their worship services? Gongs, clanging cymbals, even blaring trumpets which would accompany their ecstatic, nonsensical gibberish in their rituals. So knowing all of this, the Apostle Paul says, look, folks, even if I had supernatural eloquence without authentic agape love, I am nothing more than the obnoxious, torturous nuisance. That would be like those gongs and cymbals that you're used to hearing. In other words, it, it just gets on God's nerves and everybody else's. 
I can't help but think about a friend who made the mistake of buying their four-year-old little boy a drum set. That's the idea. It's also interesting if you look at this. Paul says, I have become, perfect tense. It's really interesting. In other words, what he's saying here is that my behavior has determined my character. And that's what sin is. Sin is characterological. Sin conforms you into its image, so you become your sin. Somebody who drinks too much is called a drunkard. And that's what he's saying here. Your behavior, when you do this kind of thing, will permanently transform you into something that is repulsive to God and to others. Then he has another illustration. He goes on from there. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy. Now, you will recall, this is the gift of preaching. It's not foretelling. It's forthtelling. It's the proclamation of divine truth. In verse 1 of chapter 14, he's going to go on and talk about how that this was preferred over tongues because it edifies. So he's saying, even if you have the gift of preaching, even if you are a, a Whitfield, a Knox, a Spurgeon, an Edwards, a MacArthur, if you don't have love, you're nothing. Now, remember, the Corinthians wrongly believed that those who possessed the more visible, dramatic, showy gifts were more important in God's eyes. A misunderstanding, once again, that Paul dealt with in chapter 12. And so he's saying, hey, you can even have this gift of of prophecy, but without love, you're nothing. He goes on, once again, from, from the possible to the impossible. He says, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. In other words, even if I knew all the revealed and unrevealed mysteries of God, even if I knew all the revelation of God that comes through the Spirit, even if I was omniscient in my spiritual understanding, even if I could comprehend all things in creation, without agape love, I am nothing. You are nothing. So in other words, hey, you Corinthians that pride yourselves in your oratorical abilities, pride yourselves in your vast wisdom, without love, your ministry is nothing. You may be impressed, others may be impressed, but God isn't. Earlier in chapter 8, and verse 1, he says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Interesting in light of what he's saying here, isn't it? I mean, we've all seen the star of the Sunday school class that has an answer for everything, right? The one who poses the gotcha questions to the, to the Sunday school teacher to embarrass him. We've all been around spiritual snobs and self-promoting phonies who have no thought of edifying other people. They have no self-sacrificing and affectionate disposition that seeks the, others, the good of others. They're just promoting themselves. This is like most of the spiritual posts you would see on Facebook or responses to blogs. It's just noisy gongs, clanging cymbals, nothing without love. Paul goes on to say, and if I have all faith, I mean, he's just really going out there. I mean, can you imagine having all the faith there is to possess? So as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Again, he goes from the realm of the possible to the impossible. 
Now, he's not referring to saving faith here. He's referring to faith that is even beyond a believer's confidence uh, to trust God in all aspects of life, even in overwhelming situations. I mean, it's even beyond that. Even if you had all of that to remove mountains, hyperbole. If you do not have love, you are nothing. Wasn't it last week we studied Jonah? My, Jonah had great faith, didn't he? He didn't want to go to the Ninevites. Remember why? He said, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now that's faith. But he didn't have love. Remember? Remember when they repented? <laughs> I love verse 1 of chapter 4. These people, I mean, it's like the greatest revival in the history of the world. And here's what it says. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Jonah wanted God to judge them, not save them. Why? Because he lacked agape love. Folks, it's fascinating. God may use your ministry to accomplish his purposes, even if you're deficient in love. But you will receive no eternal reward. And eventually people are going to find you out. You're, you're functioning in the flesh because there's a lack of love. If I can digress for a moment, you know, we, we know from Scripture we're going to be judged, we're going to be evaluated on the basis of why and what we did for the glory of God. This is called the judgment seat of God or Christ. 1 Corinthians 14.10, there's two passages. 1 Corinthians 14.10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Of course, the judgment seat was the Bema seat. You're, you're familiar with that background. That's where people would be judged or receive rewards or so forth in their culture. The other passage is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, whether it's worthless or if it's poor quality or low standard, if it was done with the wrong or the right motives. In 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12, it says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And what Paul is saying in all of that is similar to what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 13. Some of your works will have lasting value. Some of my works will have lasting value. And they will endure the testing fire of divine judgment. And some won't. You see, loving, God-centered service offered in the strength of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ will have great value. But unloving, man-centered service offered in the strength of the flesh and for the glory of man, will have no value. And that's what Paul is saying here. Beloved, we all have spiritual gifts, but that doesn't make us spiritual. What makes us spiritual is walking by the Spirit, yielding to Him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And then it is the Spirit that causes us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. And that will be contagious. It will be powerful. It will point people to Christ, not to you or me. And then Paul concludes this introduction saying, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. In other words, if I liquidate everything that I own, 
and give it to the poor. He goes on, even more extreme. If I surrender my body to be, be, to be burned. In other words, even if I suffer death, the death of martyrdom in an agonizing way, but do not have love. In other words, if in my heart I'm motivated out of self-glory, then the glory of God and the desire for other people to come to Christ, it profits me nothing. Oh, child of God, if you're a stranger to all of this, then your service to Christ really counts as nothing. You're operating in the flesh, not in the spirit. So the rest of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5 will also be sickly on your vine. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if the love isn't there, there's also going to be a lack of joy, peace, a lack of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, all those fruits grow together. If you have an apple tree, you don't have one limb producing one bad apple and everything else is good. I mean, if there's bad apple because of the root and all, it's, it's all going to be bad. So, folks, let me close with just a few thoughts. I don't want to challenge you with this. The mark of genuine Christianity is not a Christian tattoo on your body. It's not, a, not the symbol of a fish on your car. It's not some bumper sticker. It, it's, it's, it's not having a King James Bible. It's not wearing certain clothes or, or having your hair done a certain way. It, it, it's not being against social issues. It, it's not about voting Republican. It's not about church affiliation and church service. It's not about homeschooling your kids or whatever it is. Folks, the mark of authentic Christianity is the absolute supremacy of agape love that flows from your heart. What is the first commandment? Remember what the lawyer asked Jesus? And Jesus answered him and said, You do love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. This is how all men are going to know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. So I challenge you, do you love in this way? If not, let me tell you where it begins. It begins, it begins with you having an overwhelming conviction of your sin and seeing the love of Christ and being able to say to yourself, I can't believe this, but Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That's where it begins. And then to realize that God demonstrates his love toward me. And that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And then we begin to experience the love of God that has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And by the power of the Spirit, there is an igniting that begins to occur within the soul. And suddenly there exists within us a, a passionate, vehement, all-consuming passion and energy for the glory of God. And we become zealous for King Jesus, the lover of our soul. And as a result of that, we long to walk by the Spirit 
to know him, to know his word, to be obedient to it. And as a result of that, he empowers us and we begin to love. And I close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. There is no light in the planet but that which cometh from the sun. There is no light in the moon but that which is borrowed. And there is no true love in the heart but that which cometh from God. Love the life and the way of the universe. Now God is both life and light and way. And to crown all, God is love. From this overflowing fountain of the infinite love of God, all our love to God must spring. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love for us. We know that we do not, we do not deserve it. And I pray that the reality of your mercy and grace towards us will motivate us more than it ever has to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, even our enemies, knowing that it is only when we have a spirit-empowered compassion for the eternal destiny of men's souls will we be able to act consistently with what you've asked us to do, to love self-sacrificially. I pray for the men of this church that they will love their wives in this way and that wives will love their husbands in this way and that we will love our children and our children will love us and our families and our church family and all those with whom we come in contact. So thank you for these words of truth. May they bear much fruit for our good and for your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.